Welcome to the Savage Leader Podcast, where I interview leaders from all walks of life so that you can walk away with tips to apply to your life and your career. But this isn't your traditional leadership podcast, because I believe that leadership tips come from successful entrepreneurs and business executives, of course, but they also come from unexpected places, like from Navy SEALs, successful professional athletes, sports coaches, musicians, entertainers, and more. So let's dive right in to today's episode. My hope is you walk away with something tangible that you can apply immediately to your life and your career. Today's guest on the Savage Reader podcast is Claudia Castellanos. Claudia is the co-founder and CEO of Black Mamba Foods, a social impact company based in the Southern African country of Eswatini. Claudia, thanks for coming on today. Uh, Thanks so much for having me, Darren. Very, very happy to be here today. So tell me, it's obviously, it's been a few years, but I'm just curious, like, how does a kid growing up in Bogota, Colombia, end up in Southern Africa in Eswatini? That's the question of a million dollars, I guess. Everybody always asks, like, how did you end up in Africa? And most of all, in one of the tiniest countries of Africa. So I have to say what brought me here was my research of purpose. I was in my 30s, just early 30s. I started working. I was working for a big multinational in in Italy. I was having sort of like a normal sort of corporate life, but I, I was always feeling that there was something missing. I started looking for what was missing and all of a sudden I just started thinking that I was missing purpose. I was missing what was I doing with my life if I wasn't doing something else that could help other people. And so I started back then looking for opportunities of where could I apply my skills in a way that I could actually benefit someone else besides a large corporate of myself. And I bumped into this organization called back then MBAs Without Borders that doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately. And they will connect you to organizations that will require some sort of capacity building. And I applied without thinking twice. And they called me a week after and they said, we have this, they told me, we have this opportunity in a country called Swaziland that I didn't even know existed. (laughs) So while I was talking to the guy, I was also quickly Googling Swaziland because I, I just wanted to come to Africa. I had this sort of like weird fascination with Africa. So as soon as I saw it was Africa, I told them, yes, I'm coming. And that's how I landed in Africa, in Swaziland, as a volunteer for a project of four months with a handcraft business that turned into 12 years with a food business that I created called Black Mamba. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I have a, a little experience in Africa. We went on safari to Kenya when we were, I think, in eighth grade, going to ninth grade. And my grandparents, interesting fun facts, they actually lived in three different African countries. So uh, Nigeria, Kenya, and Botswana. So definitely uh, interesting, just uh, the the fascination, interest in, in bringing you to Africa. Definitely. I, I had the opportunity, and I think that was part of the fascination. I did a safari, like you say, in Kenya a few years before then. I just absolutely, I loved Africa. I know they always said you can leave Africa, but Africa will never leave you. And I think they're right. There is some sort of fascination that you get with the continent. And one of the reasons why I came back is just because I really needed to experience this continent more. What were you doing in the multinational? I think you worked for Danone, this is a global company. What kind of work were you doing at the time? So back then I was working as a regional manager for sales and trade marketing for Central Africa. So I used to live close to Florence, but I used to work with all the areas around all the way to Rome almost. So it was a very interesting period because I had to deal with a lot of 
sales management, funny enough, and also with food. I'm, I'm a firm believer of like, don't be careful what you wish for, because back then I was a little bit tired of the corporate life and the sort of job that I was doing that involved a lot of food. And I remember saying to myself, okay, this is it. I am never, ever again <laughs> working with food. And here I am some few years down the line doing again, the work with food. You mentioned something interesting in terms of just you coming across a, a lack of purpose. Can you just take me through that a little bit? Because I think people can relate to that. I think there's just so many people that, especially with the great resignation, people are are leaving jobs for different reasons. And you know, one thing is just a, a lack of purpose, obviously uh, not having great people that they actually work for or great or toxic companies. But can you just take me through that journey a little bit for yourself in terms of how you came about just the focus on purpose? Like, was it a specific situation or just anything more broadly that, that really led you to that? I think purpose is something that is probably inherent to all of us as humans, but we all have different whys in our lives. Why do we do what we do? Why do we want to do something different? And I think the research of purpose will bring you deep to what really matters to you in your life. And I think it's something that is particularly interesting nowadays because there's so many issues that you can see in the planet. And I don't think there were less issues before, but I think we had a less possibility to actually see those issues. I think now, obviously, the access that we have to information almost immediately will allow you to get very anxious about a lot of things that are not working on the planet. Before, they were probably not working as well, but now you get to actually see them closely and get access to that information. So for me, it was a case of seeing what am I doing with this corporate, even though I, I, I think Danon is one of the really good ones um, of the bunch, but what am I doing here? Who am I helping? Who am I actually impacting in a positive way by actually, excuse it, but selling yogurt, you know, to supermarkets? So that was my first sort of like questioning that I started doing about purpose. And then I think also coming from Colombia, well, you have obviously a, a developing country that have a lot of issues and being in, in touch when I was younger to all of these issues made me realize that and what became my mantra or my driving force, if you want to call it that, is be the change you want to see in the world. At some point, I want to just say, well, you know, we all hurt for several things that could happen. And what we realize is that there are several reactions to that. There is a reaction of saying, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling really bad about it, but, you know, I move on with my life. There's the other sort of reaction, which is the freeze reaction. There's nothing I can do. I become anxious or depressed. And there's the third one that is the one that I chose that I believe is the one that a lot of people that I look for purpose choose, which is the fight in a way. is like, how can I do to actually change things that bother me to find that purpose? And that's when your searches start to look Okay, in my case, it took me to Africa to work for social businesses, to actually use my skills to impact positively other people that needed that. And I think that's basically the look for purpose, just finding your why deep inside you and how can you effectively act on that why. It sounds easy. And I think many times people think it's a, a flash of light or a you know existential moment for people. Obviously, Simon Sinek talks a lot about Start With Why and has these very rigorous workshops to help people do that. But how did you go about really just getting that much more crisp on your why and what really mattered to you? 
I think I just took a leap of faith when I came to Africa. And as a matter of fact, my, my volunteering was supposed to be only for four months. But the moment I landed in, in Swaziland back then, now it's called Eswatini, and I started working with this business that I used to work. It was a social business called Gone Rural. And what Gone Rural does is that they create beautiful homeware out of woven grass and items, you know, like placemats and other sorts of items with woven grass. But the way they were working is that they have a network of 800 women in the fields, in the rural areas of Swaziland that are very remote and really disconnected from the main urban areas of people that don't have other ways of really earning an income. And when I saw that, I just, I literally had that epiphany moment. I was thinking, this is what I want to do. I, I can see that this is actually doing a real change in people's lives. This is actually doing something for women. Swaziland is a very patriarchal society, unfortunately, still, where women have a lower status than men. So what Gone Rural was doing is was giving these, these women the opportunity to actually grow, to empower themselves as being proud of what they do, to get an income out of what they did. They would create beautiful products that they could sell around the world. They actually sold in a lot of like really interesting shops around the world. And that volunteering experience made me realize I want to do this. I want to keep on doing this. I'm not going back to Italy. So I literally just kind of like quit everything I had there, left my apartment, everything behind. And I said, now I'm going to work in Swaziland. I'm, I want to be instrumental and proactive in bringing positive change to the communities of Eswatini. And that was the beginning of it. So what was next? So next was that I actually got engaged with a really interesting American NGO called Technosurf that used to work as well in capacity building for small businesses. So I was very lucky because my sort of stint with Gone Rural got me a potential uh, or a position as a consultant with them, capacity building for other handcraft businesses. So I started building sort of a network. But then the funny thing happened is because things sometimes happen just for a strange reason. I was walking on a beach in Mozambique with my now husband, back then boyfriend, and he just mentioned out of the blue, that he used to run back in the days that was, we're talking, this is 2010 where we are. And he used to run in 2002, a hot sauce business called Black Mamba. And my marketing mind, because that's, that was my background marketing and sales. I just heard the word Black Mamba and I thought that's a brilliant name for a hot sauce. You know, it's the most dangerous snake in Africa. So I started asking, he's a serial entrepreneur. He always starts a lot of projects, gets super enthusiastic about them and excited and that he just dropped them and move on to the next thing. But I told him, I, I like that name and I think it's a great name and I can see this business working. And what about if we started again, but except of doing it the way you were doing it, we work with the same business model that was working with the handcraft businesses. That is, we involve rural communities that will grow the ingredients we create this amazing, really kick-ass brand and we start selling the products and see what happens. And that was the beginning of Black Mamba. So what were some of the early challenges? I could just imagine just uh, you're in Eswatini, just a small business trying to, to stand up and compete with just the, the huge array of, of hot sauce companies around the world. Like, What were some of those early challenges you guys faced? I think the first early challenges are related to you, you start businesses in Africa. It's a tough environment. It's an environment, I would say, luckily, 
it, it's a great ground for pilot business because you can very quickly, with a very high quality product, you can get into the local market fairly easily. So that was that was a good thing. I guess we had the skills. I had the skills in marketing. My husband was a great graphic designer. So we created this sort of image and idea of a brand that looked very high-end and good quality. And then we needed to create a great recipe and her his sister, that was actually a chef, helped us with the first sort of combination, our first recipe, which is our cayenne chili sauce, our hot sauce. And we had something really good. So what we did is we sold, we prepared those bottles, we sold them. We used to cook in the back of our kitchen and our veranda in a pot, cut the chilies ourselves, cook everything, blend everything, put in bottles. And we actually launched this festival in Swaziland called Bushfire. And we sold the 400 bottles. So that was actually, that put us obviously in a level that we can do and we can take over the world. I would say at the beginning, there were not that many challenges, but the challenges came a little bit further down the line when we realized, like you say, that you have to compete with a lot of other hot sauces around. But we also realized very early that we needed to become an export business. Swaziland is a country for a specialty food item that doesn't have a big market. The country only has 1 million people. That's the total population of which the population that could probably buy Black Mamba would be probably 1% of that population. So not a lot of people. So the challenges were very quickly on how can we start exporting and how can we actually differentiate ourselves from other brands that were in the market. So how did you actually go about doing that? Obviously, you had a, a background in in selling and marketing through Danone. Like, what, what were some of the early steps the two of you took in terms of just growing and and getting access to new marketplaces? I think there were quite a few things, but I think one of the first things that we did is from the marketing perspective, as you you obviously mentioned, I think for me it was very important that we have a great and clear positioning. And our positioning was based on our ethical values, on the support for the rural communities, but also for the environment. Very early When I moved here, I became quite of a strong environmentalist and and environment activist. So that was something that we wanted to translate into business. So from the very beginning, we said we need to create a point of difference that would be based, of course, in, in the sort of like social environmental ethos that the business has. But for food, you cannot sell food unless, you know, the proof is in the pudding in a way. It has to be tasty. It has to be a great product, a great recipes that we did. So... From the very beginning, we tried to differentiate ourselves with getting a clean product made with ingredients, like we say in our labels, and organically grown ingredients and no added nonsense. So that was the first port of differentiation with a lot of hot sauces that were then in the market. We're talking 10, 12 years ago. The fact that we were cooking already with clean ingredients, which is very much a trend nowadays, but wasn't that much of a trend back then. The second point of difference is about the sustainability aspect. The fact that we work with rural farmers, the fact that we actually only pack, for instance, our bottles are glass. We try to work as much as possible with recycling materials. We recycle our materials that you can recycle, but also biodegrade as much as possible. And I think the Africanness linked to a brand called Black Mamba, which is fiery but fun at the same time, allowed us to start very early to create a very interesting niche market and, and followers in that sense. It's interesting. I think about you guys. In Eswatini, and obviously it sounds like most of your customers are, I know you're selling in the UK and in the US, is how did you go about just connecting with customers and developing products that that met those needs? Because obviously you mentioned 
1% of the population of a million people in Eswatini would be potential buyers? Or like, how did you actually go about building out your product set to, to meet the needs of those customers? I think there's definitely different ways that you can do that. I can always remember my first international sale was to a German customer that is still a customer nowadays. And I was super excited because he used to export handcrafts from Eswatini. So I get to know him before I even started Black Mamba because he was one of the buyers from some of the businesses that we used to support and consult for. And then at some point he said, you know what, let's try food. Why not? And he ordered four cases, full four cases, 80 bottles of Black Mamba. So I was really excited because it was our first test. We started building, obviously, all the processes for exporting that are not necessarily easy. But all the ways of how we've been building our products have been literally out of taste. Me and my husband are very much what we call chili heads. <laughs> we really love chilies. We really love sauces. We try everything that comes away. So that's part of how fits our sort of like product our research and development for products, market trends as well. Darren, the reality is that obviously you want to create something, but you want to create something that people are looking into at world level, but following again, the premise that we only use clean ingredients, that we use locally source ingredients. So that plays into that as well. Some customers just come to us and say, what about developing something? You know, for instance, we do pestos as well. But instead of doing them with pine nuts, we do them with macadamias, which are locally sourced in Eswatini. Customer, I think it was from Norway. He just came to me and say, what about doing a spicy pesto? Because, you know, we get lots of pestos here, but nobody does a chili pesto. So I said, well, that's a great idea. So we started working on a project, product as well based on recommendations from customers that we have. So it's just, just a mix of everything, I guess. And I think it's about building great relationships with your customers. We have customers that have been with us literally since Black Mamba has started. That's fantastic. I'd, I'd be curious just to, to get back to just what even got you into the business in the first place. I'd just love to hear more about the impact that you've had on the local community. Like, What, what kind of differences have you seen? What impact has your business been able to have on the all the things you mentioned as part of your values, both being a sustainable brand, but but also impacting the local, the folks in Eswatini? I think that's the reason of being, you know, you always call about your raison d'etre. And it's just, I just love the fact, you know, it makes me feel very proud to have products all around the world that creating brand awareness in different countries. But the, the reason of being, besides all that sort of proud of building a brand for us, come to the fact that we can see the positive impact that we are doing on communities. Every time we, for instance, hire a new person at Black Mamba, you can have an office desk but I always make a point of bringing these people to actually go and visit the communities we work with and the farmers just to see why we do what we do. Just to give you an idea, for instance, at the moment, we have a network of around 60 farmers. So this is the smallholders or even microholders. So people that have an extension of land that is almost a garden, basically not more than that. And what we do is we, from the very beginning, started working with a local NGO called Guba. So Guba does train these small farmers in something that, again, is very trendy nowadays that we've been doing for many, many years called regenerative agriculture through permaculture methods. So those methods allow you to actually go beyond sustainability to really literally regenerate the earth, creating better quality soil, making sure that the crops that you grow will grow better just by treating it kindly, by not putting pesticides, by growing in a certain way with companion plants. So we've done all of that with our um, sort of partner NGO Guba. And the great thing about that is that you can see these farmers that have improved their food security. 
No, Eswatini, unfortunately, has still one of the highest HIV rates in the world. And one of the main things that you can do when you're HIV positive is make sure you have a good sort of like that you feed yourself the proper food. So by learning how to grow your food, your healthy food and eat that healthy food, they've already been a difference in that sense. But out of these 60 farmers, they usually have an average around five or six dependents. So again, Swaziland, because of being the country with so many issues with HIV, we basically almost lost an entire generation of adults. And you see a lot of like older people and mostly grandmas, they call them gogos here, gogos that need to raise the grandkids. So what we've noticed is these gogos usually have five or six kids or even adults have five or six kids that they depend on them by actually growing healthier food, by getting an income out of the ingredients that Black Mama purchased for them, the positive impact goes beyond these 60 farmers to all of their dependents. And what we've noticed as well, which is very encouraging, is that these farmers teach other members of their communities how to grow food through permaculture methods. And in average, they teach, or the, the, the teachings that they learn go to around 10 more people in the communities so if you think about it, between that, between the, the fact that we employ mostly women as well in a factory, the amount of dependents that they have, the positive impact that Black Mamba has in Swaziland is around 1,000 individuals in terms of income, in terms of learning how to grow their food, in terms of, of how they actually change also the arable land in Eswatini. You know, we really need to clear the soil and the land out of pesticides and poisons that, that we put in there and in our foods. So for me, knowing that more and more arable land in Eswatini is actually grown via regenerative agriculture methods makes me realize that we're doing something also beyond the people and the rural communities, but also something extremely good for the planet. What does the future hold for you guys in terms of your company, in terms of Black Mamba? Any, any future plans, what you're thinking about? Yes, I want to just achieve Chile world domination. That's the main plan. <laughs> it's our master plan. We're going to achieve Chile world domination. And the slogan that we have is obviously changing the world one Chile at a time. And I think in terms of being a little bit serious about it is uh, we have the plan to actually grow our brand even further in the markets where we're in at the moment. So the U.S. is probably one of our, our biggest sort of markets. We believe there's a lot of traction for African fun and fiery products, even though it's very competitive for the hot sauces. But we do have a point of difference in that sense. We do want to obviously grow our value chain of farmers. We're hoping that in the next two to three years, grow our value chains from 60 to 200 farmers. We have the possibility to do that and get to 2% of the total amount of arable land in Swaziland to be grown with regenerative agriculture. But I think the most important thing for me in particular is that Black Mamba needs to become a leader in the aspect of sustainable businesses, you know? And I, I always joke, but I think it's very true and serious that we want to become the Patagonia of hot sauces, you know? Patagonia is always sort of like this big sort of benchmark of sustainable business that we, we can achieve. We want to become a thought leader that we can also promote the business model that supports communities and is good to the environment and make understand other businesses in developing countries that it can be successful that people and planet first will lead to profit and that we can hopefully get this business model, model replicated in many other countries around the world. Patagonia has definitely been a, a leader, whether it's from the, I think it's 1% one, 1 for the planet, plus just leading so many different causes and even just like their, their change in their ownership model to, of, uh, of late. But 
on that note, like what would what's your advice to companies that are trying to have more of a positive impact? Obviously, it's challenging for well-established companies to suddenly just incorporate having a greater sense of purpose and impact. Like, what advice do you have for for leaders of established organizations to to bring that into their businesses? If you think literally on a very pragmatic approach, without thinking that is the right thing to do, that obviously thinking about people and the planet is the right thing to do. I think that is obvious for everybody, but obviously you have to present results to your shareholders. You have to present results to your investors. I think the first advice that I would give to any people like that is it makes market sense. If you think about it, the people that are going to be purchasing products now or in the future, thinking millennials, thinking Gen Zers, thinking even the generations that are coming after, these generations are much more emotionally involved with brands that are sustainable brands. So it does make market sense also because nowadays we get access to information so quickly that you still have the possibility to do some greenwashing. I think everybody still does that, but people are not silly and they will find information, real information about what your brand is actually trying to do. So doing the right thing, it's not only the right thing to do because it's what we need as a planet, as a species for survival, as helping obviously communities and everything else, but it, it also makes market sense. You need to do it because you're going to lose customers otherwise. Any practical tips that you have for people? I, I think you make a great point, which is starting with why, what's the, the market case? What's the business case for doing that? But in terms of practically speaking, how can companies start to think about bringing some different methods and impact into their companies? If you're talking from a larger company perspective, I would say hire younger people. <laughs> That's the first thing. All the younger people that I know are much more committed to a better future for all of us as a planet, as the environment. You yourself say it like the great resignation is more sort of a already these younger people looking for purpose. So finding people that are looking for that purpose and hiring them in your business and giving them the possibility to work on that purpose, it would be the first step. And for smaller businesses, you know, if you're an entrepreneur and you're willing to do something that has purpose, it's always thinking about, I don't know if you've ever heard of a concept. I love that concept and I use it a lot when I mentor a concept called Ikigai, which is a Japanese concept that feels that your sweet spot on what you will be fulfilled to do in life comes from four things. Doing what you love, doing what you're good at, doing what you could be paid for, and doing something that the world needs. So if you think about those four spaces and you put it together as an entrepreneur, you will find the purpose that will actually be fulfilling in terms of a potential company that you could create. If you think about social impact companies, what are some of the unique challenges that, that you face, but also other social impact companies face? I think as a, as a business, I would say one thing that you always need to, to do to become sustainable, besides the sustainability from the environmental and, and social point of view, is you need to be able to create enough income to survive. So one of the main issues I would say as a social business is you need to find as well that balance between fulfilling that purpose or the social reason why you created your business, but also make sure that you run it as a business. Otherwise, you can run an NGO. I always tell even the farmers we work with, we are not a charity. I personally don't believe in a lot of like nonprofit work that has been done in Africa. And I see that also as a culprit of why and some of the reasons why this 
continent hasn't developed as far as other continents. So I would say run your business as a business, keep your purpose obviously at the base and the foundation of the business, but make sure that you generate the level of income that you need in order to make yourself sustainable. And it seems very obvious, but sometimes you will rely on social businesses that they seem so detracted on their sort of purpose that they forget that they need to sustain that purpose by creating sales in our case. That's interesting. I was actually going to ask you about how do you handle the trade-offs of the bottom line and what you talk about being good for you, good for the planet and good for the community. But it sounds like what you're talking about is, hey, lead with, you have to run this like a business first and foremost before you can even deliver the impact that you seek to have. And I can tell you, I can give you a very interesting example of that. So back in the days when we started Black Mamba, we used to deliver seeds to the farmers and we used to give the seeds for free. So you get a bunch of like 2000 seeds of habanero chilies, for instance, and we gave them to the farmers for free. So what happens is I call the farmers a week after and say, have you planted the seeds? And they said, oh, sorry, we had community meetings and we had this and that. We haven't planted them. So you call them the following week and what happened? Ah, the birds actually ate half of the seeds because we didn't plant them on time. So out of that example, what I did the following time is like, I'm going to give you again 2,000 seeds, but this time I'm going to charge you for them. You don't have to pay me straight away. What we will do is we will deduct a certain portion, a fraction of that out of the money that we have to pay when we buy the chilies from you. So they don't have to pay straight away. They only pay when they're selling the chilies and it's a deduction. So I call them a week after we actually do this deal and I call up the farmers that we work with, business people, because we're, we're trading here, you know, there's no charities, there are no giveaways. So I call them a week after and I said, hi, you're done with the seeds. And they say, oh, just to let you know, you gave us 1,995 seeds, not 2,000 seeds. So that completely changed the overview on what they had to do because it gave them accountability and the fact that it's not for free and you need to work for it changed completely the overview on how they needed to run their relationship with Black Home. Yeah, it's a fantastic example of accountability, but also having skin in the game, right? So they actually did something about it. That's hilarious. They actually counted the number of seeds, whereas before they hadn't even taken the, the time to actually plant those seeds so that the birds ate them. Exactly. When it's not for free, you have to be accountable, you know, because you have to pay something for it. So that was a very good learning. And that's what I'm telling you. We're not a charity. And every step of the way, we need to actually deduct fees that we need to deduct to make it sustainable for everybody. Buba, the NGO that works with the farmers and brings all the produce that they do to us, they also deduct a fee from the farmers because they need to pay for the transport of the ingredients to our factory. So every aspect of the value chain is run as a business. We pay fair prices to the farmers that are above market price, but at the same time, we need to make sure that we continue to thrive so that everybody keeps on thriving. So that's, I think, was a lesson that was here. Also, I think about one of the challenges people probably think, or maybe skeptics would think about how do you actually measure the impact of a social impact company? Just how have you gone about in terms of measuring some of the things to not just, obviously you can measure the bottom line and revenue, but in terms of how do you actually measure the impact that you're having? That's a very interesting question. And it's so important because if you could actually measure your impact, you're actually walking the talk and you're preventing greenwashing. I'm a very big averse of, of, of greenwashing. I hate it when people try to make you believe that they're good when they're not. So the things that you need to do, I think it's very important that you actually choose metrics from the beginning and you could choose metrics that make sense for your business. But I can tell you some of the metrics that Black Mamba does 
is, for instance, on waste management. How percentage of the waste that we create, so obviously weight, every waste that we create, but what percentage of that waste goes to landfill, what gets recycled, what gets composted. So it gives us an idea on like we have to have a certain target and how do we get to that target. Then another metric that we have, for instance, is the amount of farmers that we work with and the amount of dependents that they get and the amount of people that they teach on what they're learning. So you just get to see exactly the positive effect on how many people you can get. And that requires also gathering of data, talking to the farmers, see how many families they have. As I mentioned to you before, the fact that I can tell you that I know for a fact we positively impact around a thousand people in Eswatini is because we've been collecting data from those people. You can actually collect data on use of resources, how much water you use, how much electricity, how many renewable uh, resources you use versus normal sources of energy. And in terms of the impact with, with the communities, you can actually measure. Another thing that we measure also is the gender. So how many women versus men we get. And just to give you an example, for instance, Black Mamba is 85% women, 15% men. Out of the farmers, we have 70% women and 30% men. So that's another impact that we do in terms of like bringing and trying to change the sort of patriarchal model of society that Eswatini has. But you can also actually check out of the income that the farmers receive, what percentage of that income actually comes from what they do for Black Mamba, what percentage of that income comes part of what you call the living wage. So it's a, it's a metric that you use a lot in social businesses because it's not the same to have a minimum wage on what do you actually need in order to actually live decently. So you work on a living wage that we calculate together with farmers and we calculate together with our employees. So there's another metric that we have. And also the other things that you can start working on is looking to get certifications because they will allow you to get to the level of impacts that you want or that you think you have or you might not have achieved yet. So one of the things that we're doing at the moment with Black Mamba is we are going through the impact assessment journey to become a B Corp company. So our, our, obviously our aim is to become B Corp. But that will mean that as a matter of fact, you're already measuring and putting in place all these metrics that will allow you to, to see if you're as good as you think you are. Well, Claudia, this is a fascinating conversation, really inspiring just impressed by the the work that you all are doing in terms of just making a difference to people to the local community and also to the to the broader world but where can people go to try out your famous hot sauces chutneys and pestos awesome well thanks so much darren so basically they can our our, our pole of connection for everything would be our website which is black mamba chili c-h-i-l-l-i.com and there obviously you get to see the stockists where you can find Black Mamba. And in the U.S., for instance, we work very closely with uh, the largest fair trade platform in the U.S. called Serve, S-E-R-V-S.org. So they have a very nice range of our products. We have our gift packs as well on Amazon. And we managed to get our first uh, brick and mortar listing in the U.S. that makes us extremely proud a few months ago with a Texan retailer called Specs. So you can actually find also a selection of a range and specs in the U.S. Well, congratulations. And I look forward to you following your ongoing success. Thank you so much, Darren. And thanks so much for having me. It's very interesting and exciting to be able to tell the story of Black Mamba, our impact, and, and the hot story behind it, I would say, for sure. <laughs> I appreciate your time. Thanks, Claudia. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Savage Leader Podcast. My hope is you are walking away with tactics that you can apply to become a better leader in your life and in your career. 
If you're looking for additional insight and tactics, be sure to check out my book titled The Savage Leader, 13 Principles to Become a Better Leader from the Inside Out. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, and I would truly appreciate it if you would leave a review and also rate the podcast. Thanks, and see you all in the next episode.